0: Welcome to season two of Best in SaaS, where we talk through the patterns and playbooks in the revenue sprint to 20 million and beyond with the industry's most accomplished executives, entrepreneurs, and investors. Despite the world melting around us, we survived season one with only a few scratches and a couple of bathroom incidents from our resident Best in SaaS puppy mascot, Stuart. Wash your hands and don your favorite face mask because here comes season two. Howdy everyone. Welcome back to another episode. I am thrilled, per usual, for you to listen in on this conversation. But before we get into it, if you're a regular listener and you enjoy the discussions, do me a favor and let us know by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks find the show and it helps Apple realize they should feature us on New and Noteworthy. So that would be awesome. With that, enough of my blabbing. Let's get on to the episode. All right. Today I'd like to welcome Brett Plotzker to the show. Uh, Brett founded Anagram, which was formerly known as Patch, and got them to 3 million ARR incredibly quickly. To led them through, I think it was something like, what, 17 million in funding that you raised?
1: Yeah, close enough.
0: Yeah. Anyway, uh, super great founder, operator. Uh, He's now working on his next thing, which we'll talk about more um, or figuring out that what that is and that whole process. But Brett, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, you know, you were a first time founder, correct? When you started Patch?
1: Uh, On paper, it appears that way. But as with anything, uh, I definitely founded a few companies before, but nothing of note. Okay.
0: Um, So I'd love to start there then, because I, I feel like sometimes... Uh as someone with a similar background a lot of our a lot of time our failures inform our first success. Sure. I'm curious if that rings true for you and if so are there any stories of like superb failure that you think shaped who you are today and the success that you had with Anagram?
1: Yeah, many. Um so I think the first business that I really tried to start was right after college and I don't even count it because I literally had no idea what the hell I was doing. Um Poured a little bit of my own money into it. Ostensibly, it was a, um, a birthday reminder application. This was pre-Facebook opening up the, opening up Access. It was right when Facebook was coming out. Okay. Um, and the idea was really to help people remember their birthdays, get a few jobs here and there. I won't go too deep into it. But tried to start a company right before going to business school as well. So it was a social gaming company uh, that was trying to do way too much. <laughs> it was trying to... <laughs> basically our idea was bobbleheads were cool but we could make them plush and then we could take them into a social game online and sort of act as a virtual and real trading card in real time and we were following this trend of what if you know what webkins are it's a yeah. really obscure thing yeah. we were trying to follow that trend and i founded that with a couple of friends i learned a lesson that i will never forget which is Choose your fo- co-founders by complementary skill sets, not overlapping skill sets. And really choose your co-founders by if they are going to match your energy and match your conviction. Um, not to say that anything was wrong with them as people. It, they just weren't good business. They weren't good people to found a business with. Um, and then did some stuff during business school that was sort of hit or miss. And so it's, it's been a few fits and starts for sure.
0: So what, you, what led you to this? the first idea that hit um
1: with patch so i'll give you the the quick story so i was doing um post mba i was working for a guy out of israel probably one of the most brilliant people he's the most brilliant person i've ever met he was the i think the, the lead engineer for the usb drive out of israel so he will never say that but he was um, and we were struggling with their new product going to market. It was a peer-to-peer communications platform through a Chrome plugin. And they wanted to do something where they were going to download cool photos and videos. I wanted to do something a little less sexy with virtual data rooms and encrypted messaging for HIPAA-compliant platforms. So I started to get really interested in the healthcare data space. And as it turned, at the same time, I was going through a really shitty experience with um, a surgery I'd had where they were trying to basically charge me 10 times what I should have been charged. And so I ended up having this back and forth between the insurance company and the hospital system and their inefficiencies and friction led to me getting sent to collections. And so I ended up saying, this is, this is completely fucked up. I don't understand what's going on. We used to clear um, derivatives trades instantaneously and they were complex. I don't understand why something that says I only owe $2,000 maximum could try to charge me $20,000. And so that was really the impetus for this. The original idea that I had was, could you create a survey at exit uh, after you leave the doctor's office to really help sort of weed out? There's this huge error and fraud issue that no one knows about in healthcare, where it's about, call it like three to $400 billion a year in error and fraud. And so I got really interested in that big, juicy number and how you could bite into it. And if you could create a survey afterwards that said, hey, I did get this service, I didn't get this service, you could yellow or red flag into the insurance company so you could help adjudicate a bill instantaneously. And so that was really what that was the original idea for what Patch now Anagram is. Um, Does that answer your question?
0: It does. Yeah. So, you know, given that the show Best in Sass, our our focus is really on Post-product market fit, how founders and operators and investors think about really beginning to scale the business and, and the playbooks and the things that have worked um, in their past or that they discovered very quickly and put into play. Um, what was that moment of inflection for you where you realized you had the there was there, you had product market fit, and you're ready to take steps to begin sure. that growth, growth plan?
1: So I'll, I'll skip ahead, but basically, we started this as a B two C product, and quickly realized within about a month that it was much better served as a B two B product or a B two B to C product. That's a and fast so, realization. <laughs> yeah, It's just like when you get zero traction for a month and your thesis just gets exploded, um, you start to realize that maybe the point where you thought it was going to like where it was going to get uptick isn't true. And so I think that getting to product market fit is re- it's really hard, um, but you have to be willing to listen to the market and you can't just you can't just believe your own bullshit sometimes. And so you got to be very, very quick to you know, make those changes. So we we realized we had product market fit um, really after probably about the first six months. And it really had to do with a lot of discovery when we, you know, talking to customers and understanding what do they like, what do they not like, and what were they looking for? And everyone really wanted real-time eligibility checking was what we figured out. And that was what people would pay for because they were losing sales. People were walking out the door. People weren't using their healthcare. And that's when we realized as soon as we built out a scalable eligibility checking tool, the rest of it was like, we would be ready to go scale the product.
0: Got it. And so, what were like you right? You 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 have that moment where you realize you're ready to scale, and and the product is right. Like, what were your next steps that led you to rev up to that three million in ARR where you left off?
1: Uh, it was it was a lot. So once we realized we had a product that could sell. We had to we had to figure out who could sell it besides me. So I did all the early sales, so probably the first 7500 clients on the platform made our first sales higher. it was hard. Um, and so we had to learn sales ourselves. So I think there's a lot better resources out there, especially with what's going on like Saster is an amazing um, sort of resource playbook right now, but it was, didn't really exist when we were out there so, We did whatever we could to learn. We hired somebody. We had to end up letting them go. We hired a few more junior people and we just started to build processes out. And so- Why wasn't wasn't
0: it working at first? I'm curious. Like what what was it that- It was a
1: bad first hire. So it was, I I think we got caught in that trap of we need somebody who's a VP of sales, but we also need somebody who can take some of the uh, responsibilities away from me because I can't spend all my time I could have spent most of my time if it was an enterprise sale, but we were more of an SMB sale. We were 2000 ACV and it just doesn't work to have me pounding the phones all day when I have to concurrently run a fundraising process. Sure. And so it was a, it was a hard look. I I don't know. It's this, um, this ACV range is a real thing. So it's very difficult to find the right people in the early days to get your product to market if you have a low ACV. Um, It's just, uh, I think you just got to get, sometimes you got to get a little bit lucky with your hires. And sometimes you got to reach out a little bit outside of what your comfort zone is, hire somebody who's a little bit young and hungry, going to hit the phones and learn with you. And I think we made a couple of really good hires after our first not so good hire. And we patient with them, taught them and, you know, learned with them in a lot of ways. So I, I wish it was, I wish it was a fast path, but it's not like just with anything in life.
0: All right, so on that, like if you were to rewind to that moment of inflection where you're ready to start replacing yourself and building that team out, what would you do differently next time around based on what you learned?
1: Um, let me think. What would I do different? I would have probably not hired somebody as senior to begin with. Um, I would have hired a, probably an extra person to begin with and see, like, just to give them all sort of their own support system and not, like, not have them rely necessarily on me to be the support system. And then I probably would have brought in a VP of sales much sooner. We, we didn't bring in a true VP of sales until recently, Um, And that was a huge mistake because I think once you start to get to 500,000, 600,000 in ARR, there's just so many processes that need to go in in place and somebody to think about it more on an everyday basis. And I would think about it for a week and then I'd get pulled into something else and then I sort of forget about it. And that wasn't fair to the business and it wasn't fair to the, the sales reps, frankly. So I think once you, Jason Blumkin's right. Like once you hit a million dollars in ARR, you got it's sometimes it's too late to bring in a VP of sales. You just gotta, you gotta be really diligent about that. And it also, it allows you to hire a little bit, like it allows you to hire a director level a little bit earlier and give somebody who has some upward mobility a chance to learn a little bit more slowly and ingratiate themselves into the process. And that's what I wish I did.
0: Interesting. And so was this primarily a sales motion? Like with that low of an ACV, uh, were you able to build much of a marketing muscle to feed those sales calls? Or was it just pure outbound banging the phones and uh, like
1: smile and dial? No, it was mostly inbound, to be honest okay. with you. So we, we had um, a really good sales rep in the early days who they built a, um, a really good engine internally. So we were dealing with small optometrists, ophthalmologists, eye care clinics, and some behavioral health practices. So building a good referral network was something I think they did very naturally, and that was very helpful. We also brought on a phenomenal marketer really early on in lieu of a VP of sales, and uh, their work was, was phenomenal as well. So I think some of our sales reps ended up getting a little bit spoiled, and as we started to shift to an outbound process, it became um, a little bit difficult for them. Um, and, and again, outbound outbound's hard. So we we did our best to sort of feed the engine. Um, I think one thing we benefited from was we were, we were definitely in need that was vacant in the market. And so the referrals became a little bit more robust. Um, what I would recommend though, especially in SMBs and they, these sort of micro communities is building out a referral network and building out a um, advisory board, something we just recently did, but should have done a lot sooner to help spread the word because that really lowers the customer acquisition cost, which is something you need with these low ACV products. So
0: let's dig into that just because I think it's really a, a simple tactical, air quotes, simple <laughs> tactical <laughs> way for for folks to really leverage their existing customer's um and turn them into champions. Like what for someone listening where that would be applicable, A, in what in what situation do you think it's most applicable? Like what would their what would their kind of ICP look like and deal size look like? And then what would their next immediate steps be just based on how you rolled yours out and what you would either do the same or change next time around?
1: I I I don't know how to answer the question what the ACV would be, but I think there is this gradient between what the risk reward is on somebody's and somebody's behalf. So if you think about if you have a product that costs $2 a month and you're a consumer and you recommend it to a friend and you're like, they're like, yeah, sure. I'll try it for two bucks a month. Not a big deal, but it's $500 a month and they get locked into a year deal and it's an individual. They're going to be like, what the hell? Why would, why would you tell me that product? It sucked. So you have to be very careful of that. Um, The risk of, you know, recommending a product that might not fit somebody's needs. Um, That's just one thing to think about. Um, You know, I think you got to be, especially in the early days when the product is not, it is going to have some problems. I think being open and honest about that with people and saying, Hey, we're a startup like this. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad, but like really owning up to your mistakes can also be very powerful. Um, I'm trying to think of an answer to your question at all at this point. (laughs) right. You know, I think, I think there's um, just staying in constant contact with people and being unafraid to ask for referrals and making it really easy for people to give referrals to their network. I think that's key, Uh, but that's not reinventing the wheel.
0: Sure. I mean, sometimes the most impactful things are the fundamentals, like it's easy to lose sight of those yeah. when you're doing doing a million other things. So, in our last uh, couple of minutes, I'd love to go to a place I don't normally go, which we we spoke about earlier, um, which is like you're you're on to your next thing or figuring out what that is. And I, I think um, most founders, at least the founders who have not exited or 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 done something that was successful and then had to go through the process of figuring out what's next, probably don't assume that that can be a really like hard process and take a lot of time. And certainly when I sold my first company, like that was brutal for me. I, I, I rode a motorcycle for a year trying to figure myself out. And like, it was probably a whole nother year after that, that I even had the the energy to start something again. So I'm curious where you are in that process and what, that, what that's like for you.
1: Yeah, I'd say it's more difficult than I expected it to be. Um, I think When you go in and you haven't had any type of real success, you're always a little bit starry eyed. And and that's why I think you see the biggest success stories in in tech seem to be first time founders who just got it right the first time um, because you just know too many places where it can fail and sometimes talk yourself out of going to certain spaces because you know how difficult it's going to be. I've said no to a lot at this point. Just because I know that, uh, you you know, it's going to take five to 10 years to build something meaningful and you know, it's going to be, there's going to be these hiccups that you never foresaw. So you want to make sure that one, you're doing business with people that you want to do business with um, and that you're picking projects that, you know, you can stay motivated about through and through. So on retrospection of leaving the business, I started the business wanting to do something a little bit that was touching the consumer a little bit more and as it started to go you know deeper and deeper it's st- it stopped touching the consumer and started being really just about doctors making more money which is an important thing but it stopped revving me up honestly throughout the day sure. and so i think i want to make sure that whatever i do doesn't necessarily need to be the thing that i'm most passionate about in the world but it has to be something that I'm not going to, that I'm going to want to wake up for every single day. Um, And, you know, it's, it's hard because part of what, um, you know, you can go to both considering going to the other side of the table a little bit sometimes, but um, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fun in that too. So I think it's, you know, long winded way of saying, Um, I think I know what I'm going to do, but still not exactly sure. And it's a, it's a difficult process.
0: Totally fair. Totally fair. Um, So as we wrap, I I always love to ask the question, you know, certainly to get to the point in your career that you have, you've gotten yourself to um, takes a lot of help from a lot of smart, generous people. And um, I'm curious who has either been, whether it's a mentor or just someone in the industry that might be a peer that you, look up to and think are doing really great work. Um, If there are any folks you'd want to shout out to who have been influential.
1: Yeah. So there's, uh, there's a few, there's um, an early advisor, a guy named Dan Karani who uh, really took a leap early on. He's building something really cool in a company called friended right now, which is helping with the loneliness pandemic. Um, I love him. I trust him. He's just phenomenal. Um, There's another guy named Hari Sundram and Hari's, Hari founded a, a pretty large company, which recently had a huge exit. Um, he took a chance on us, and it's a funny story for another day, um, but he's become a, a big, you know, friend and, and mentor. Um, and then there's somebody who's much younger than me, but has been somebody I've trusted is, is well, you know, wise beyond their years, a guy named Andy Bromberg, who I think he's uh, president at CoinList right now. But I trust his judgment, um, sort of like a grandpa, (laughs) which is, (laughs) um, but yeah, I'm sure there's a bunch of other people that I've left out and it always sounds stupid not to think of them on the spot, but there's a, this has been a, a thousand people helping and I'm sure there'll be another thousand that I'll need help from. And I hope there's other people who rely on me for the same, um, who asked me for help because it's, it's more fun returning the favor than it is getting the favor.
0: Definitely. Well, Brett, I'm very excited to keep an eye and see, uh, see what you're up to next, what the, what the next adventure looks like. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show.
1: Appreciate it.